Hi everyone, and welcome to In the Podcast of Wisdom, a librarian TV show podcast. I'm turning an enthusiastic but critical eye to the librarian for the purpose of amusement, entertainment, and inspiration. I'm your host, Sam Kavner Johnson, mythology nerd and wannabe mathematician. on The Librarian. The librarian, Jacob Stone, following the death of his beloved guardian, Eve Baird, went into an intense period of mourning, spending an entire episode moping around. Stone went on a quest of vengeance, murdering the members of the Serpent Brotherhood, culminating in a meaningful and well-crafted final confrontation with Lamia, in which she is vanquished in an epic fight. Magic ran amok in the world, with neither the librarian nor the Serpent Brotherhood to control it. In his absence, the sinister company Golden Axe was able to use their magic to monopolize the food industry. In order to maintain their stranglehold over the distribution of resources, they kidnapped Santa to prevent him from distributing gifts. Despite the librarian's best efforts, he was unable to save Santa in time, preventing him from releasing his stored goodwill back into the world. This causes the world to descend into violent anarchy. While Stone does his best to gather magic artifacts, the wild power of magic only grew. The United States is now run by a delusional old man wielding the power of patriarchal fantasies. Fortunately, the librarian was able to recover the Apple of Discord after only two nuclear weapons were fired. In today's episode, our librarian has reached his lowest point after failing to stop a horrifying army of electro-ghosts from attacking New York City. I'm your host, Matt Kavnar-Johnson, environmentalist and comedy scholar, previously on The Librarian. Our intrepid librarian, Ezekiel Jones, is in his darkest hour. Last episode, Team Jones was unable to stop the spread of the ghost possession coming out of the haunted house. Now, most of the world has been turned into creepy ghost zombies. A common theme throughout this season of The Librarians is the intersection of how globalization affects the understanding and relationship we have with the supernatural. Lapsa episode demonstrated the natural endpoint, where the increased interconnectivity of the world allowed the ghost zombie plague to spread rapidly throughout the world. Yet the increasing distancing from reality that the internet and technology enables meant people were unable to take the threat seriously, outside of Teen Jones, a recurring problem that they faced this season. With the world's governments unwilling to trust Team Jones after the Apple of Discord fiasco, they were ultimately unable to coordinate a global response. We saw some key members of Team Jones sacrifice themselves in order to stave off the ghost zombies long enough for the librarian to retreat to his final base, where we begin today's episode. Ezekiel has always said that each of his bases has their own special tools. Hopefully, he has something here that will allow him to save the day. Time and time again, the librarian has saved the world by the skin of his teeth, but this time it looks like Ezekiel's luck may have run out. I'm your host, Arya Brennan, social worker and fantasy TV geek. Previously on The Librarian, Cassandra Killian accepted the help of her former rival, Lamia, following the death of her guardian, Eve Baird, at the hands of the evil Duloc. Despite Baird's sacrifice, magic was returned to the world, returning the role of the librarian to prominence. Cassandra was initially reluctant to trust Lamia, who proved her loyalty by killing Duloc and removing Excalibur from the stone, arresting the flow of magic. From this point, Lamia, acting as a double agent with the Serpent Brotherhood, traced her former associate's workings. This enabled her and Cassandra to work together to prevent the Serpent Brotherhood from ending the world as we know it and plunging the planet into darkness. However, when one member turned the Eastern and Western dragons against each other, 
it was clear that neither Lamia's physical prowess nor Cassandra's magical abilities were sufficient to end the conflict. They called upon an old friend, Morgan Le Fay, who had initially granted Cassandra her powers, but she too was unable to alter the events. Both factions of dragons rose from the earth, destroying most of modern society. Together, Cassandra and Morgan Le Fay were able to create a small sanctuary, saving a few dozen people from the fate of the rest of the world. Morgan Le Fay, used to a grander kingdom, left Cassandra and Lamia to rule the sanctuary. While uncomfortable with the role, Cassandra established a community of people working to reverse the rise of dragons so that the world could become habitable again. This week, we see the conclusion of her efforts. Wait a second. Who are you people? Why are you on my podcast? Who are you? Wait, hold up. Your podcast? Your podcast? I'm the host of this podcast! What? What? Who are you and why do you look the same? What, Wait. Why, do you, why does he look like me? No. Why no, does hold either up, of you look up. like me? I was here first. He's a copycat. No. Oh, here first. You're the real Listen. faker. Faker. <laughs> Listen, this is my podcast. I don't know who you people are and I don't know why you look the same, but this is shenanigans. I'm here to talk about the TV show The Librarian. Yeah. Why are you here? I'm here to talk about the TV show The Librarian featuring world's renowned actor Jonathan Kim as Ezekiel Jones, The Librarian. I don't Wait. even know who that is, yeah. because he is not the librarian. The librarian isn't even a dude. The librarian is played by Lindy Booth as Cassandra Killian, Hold up. the greatest librarian Hold in all up. of history. Fake news, fake news, both of you. The librarian is none other than Jacob Stone, played by the fantastic Christian Kane in his most outstanding role. I can't believe any of you would denigrate his good name by implying that anyone else would take the role of the librarian. You people disgust me. We disgust you? Yes. Shenanigans. I think there clearly must be a misunderstanding here. Misunderstanding? You stole my face. You <laughs> you two people must be very confused by whatever situation has led up to this point, and I'll be reporting you to by a nearby mental institution because- you have some clear confusion revolving around specific TV shows, which is a very strange occurrence that I haven't seen before. That you haven't seen before? Excuse me, I am the only mental health professional on this podcast because I am the only person on this podcast. I'm not sure who you two are, and I don't know what is going on with either of you. I, while I don't think I would call, describe you as a professional, I would definitely call you mental. Okay, okay, <laughs> let's slow it down. I think we need to figure out what's going on here. Wait a second. I think, wait, it's all coming back to me. Is your name Arya? Yeah, but I don't remember you guys. It's coming back to me. Are we siblings? Oh, it's coming back to me too. No, 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 I remember you guys. I remember you guys. There was this, um, we had this idea this one time that we were gonna, we were gonna do a podcast together. And one of you was like, hey, let's do it about this TV show. But it was, it was like this TV show, but it was like a little bit different. It was The Librarians. There were like that a few of them. Right. No, 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 no. Yeah, that's, that, seems, that seems really silly. Why would anyone make a TV show about multiple librarians? It does seem a little weird. And as I recall, the show's a little ridiculous. That seems completely contradictory to the mythos of the librarian to have multiple librarians. Yeah. Maybe that was the point, though? I feel like that was the point. I feel like, okay, okay, okay. Let me tell you how it goes. So, there were the three of us, all right? And we watched this TV show, The Librarians. And then a few years after that, we're like, let's do a podcast. And then we did this podcast. And now we're all really confused. 
Well, I hope I don't have any other siblings that I don't know about. That would be pretty weird. That would be weird. <laughs> this doesn't make sense. How can I have siblings if I don't have any of their birthdays stored in my brain? <laughs> no, that's just how I am normally. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so if, if we're all here to do this podcast together, let's see if we can maybe reach through across the, uh, the threads of, of time and space and see if we can talk about this episode. Today, we're looking at In the Loom of Fate, which was written by John Rogers and directed by Jonathan Frakes. It originally aired January 18th, 2015. So now that that bit is over, we can actually talk about the real episode. So we open with Baird staring at her bloody hand, and she seems surprisingly okay with it, to be honest. She kind of smiles, and we then cut to the librarians fighting mummies, trying to solve puzzles and Flynn Carson eventually shows up demonstrating the power of what could have happened if he had actually properly communicated with anyone about what they were doing. But as we've seen in previous episodes, Flynn is not very good at that. Do either of you have any thoughts about this opening scene? My first note says Rebecca Romaine isn't serious enough for this. I feel like she is somebody who really enjoys the shenanigans of the show. Like the fake out of, oh, like what's happening? Is she just asleep? And then it draws back and then there's the bloody hand. It's scary, but she's just like not quite serious enough to quite pull it off. I don't know if you guys felt the same or if it worked better for you. It felt kind of weird to me because when it cuts back from Bear staring at her hand to Baird in the pyramid, she seems to be lying down in the very first shot of her in the pyramid where people are telling her to concentrate then the very next shot she's fighting mummies with a sword which makes me wonder how how she was losing concentration and having this vision of her fate if she was fighting a mummy at the same time i also don't know if it was supposed to be a vision or if it was just for our benefit be like a bear concentrate kind of made it seem like she was waking up or something yeah which is why i was kind of confused yeah i don't know if it was just weird or if there was some intention there the fight was also pretty funny, though, because the focus is not really on the actual fighting. So if you watch the folks who are struggling in the background, they're not really moving at all. They're just kind of like facing off and posturing. It's pretty funny. But thankfully, they managed to solve this problem and get the sarcophagus because apparently it has the ability to bring back the library. Which in case you've forgotten what the library is, that was that <laughs> giant place in the first episode where they store all the magic artifacts. Right, and that's what we're in theory supposed to have been looking forward to this whole season. Hence why they're called the librarians, even though they don't appear to do anything in a library. Wait, hold up, but every episode, they're, you know, they're always on some kind of fact-finding mission for the librarian, you know, conducting a traffic study, judging a STEM competition, you know, typical librarian things. They're always up to them. Anyway, so the first they indulge in some silly ancient aliens type pyramids conspiracy theories. Yeah, I didn't remember, I don't remember why, I just watched the episode yesterday, but the second note I have is aliens all caps. Yeah, which Baird is appropriately sarcastic in response to. Oh good. Cassandra attempts to calculate the void, and the void does not want to be calculated. <laughs> And causes some brain grape-related problems. Don't call it a brain grape. She's man. started calling it a brain grape now. I think it's okay. So, in order to bring back the library, Flynn says they need a very specific list of tools that they need to bring it back. Which happens to be exactly what the libraries have been getting every single episode. They use the Morgan Le Fay code, the Tesla dimensional stabilizer, the storybook... All of them happen to be just what they need to bring back the library. Almost as if it was fate. And boy, does that point get hammered home many a time. And then they start using the storybook to... Well, so first we get a scene where Flynn attempts to just 
say random things that sound like they're ancient Egyptian, but are either just random noises or Egyptian gods. I think the direction was, Noah Wiley, go over here and make some sounds. As a resident ancient Egypt expert, Sam, how did you feel about this? Oh, I straight up don't remember the scene, so that's probably for the best. Wait, hold up, can I go on a bit of a tangent for a second? Sure. Okay, so the whole ancient aliens Egypt stuff basically tantamounts to, oh, these black people couldn't have constructed anything of this grandeur, so clearly they had aliens helping them. Oh, yikes. I never even thought about it from that angle, but that's super gross. I think Egyptologists might have a problem with describing them as black people because historical conceptions of race don't necessarily match up with ancient Egyptians, but that's basically the subtext. Yeah, because whether or not our modern Western ideas of race existed back then, they exist now and they affect how we think about the past. So we get this, like, weirdly uncomfortable scene of Baird reading into the storybook. Yeah, what was even supposed to be happening? Why was he bumping into her on purpose for no reason while she glares at him? What is the con- like, what? I interpret this as being, like, sexual harassment. That was the word that came to my mind, too. And I get that they're, like, kind of, sort of in a relationship, but she's clearly not into it. I don't understand what the writer's intent was. Did he bump into her accidentally and they thought it was really funny, so they just had him keep doing it for no reason? That sometimes happens on TV. But I don't know. I don't get it. Also, throw back to the time in which the storybook sucked people's life to power itself. Thankfully, we don't have any of that going on in this episode. Oh, right. Maybe that's because they have the whatever the power source is. Which is the book. The storybook is the power No, they have source. the Tesla lamps. That's the dimensional stabilizer. I don't know. I got nothing. Maybe it's powered by the sarcophagus thing? That just has the coordinates. They explicitly outline the storybook <laughs> as the source of the power for this specific Oh, well, magic maybe, it's draining the, maybe it's draining the guy who's still in it? I don't know. I'm just making excuses at this point. So as they're attempting to tell the story, the sarcophagus opens and noxious gas fills the annex as Duloc and Lamia appear after the librarians realized that someone had set them up. Question for you all. Were Duloc and Lamia hiding in the sarcophagus? <laughs> <laughs> or, or did they just time their dramatic entrance perfectly with the sarcophagus opening? Oh, see, I didn't understand that the noxious gas came from the sarcophagus. I thought that they had like, a stink bomb that they like threw in and then ran in, into the room. No, it was it was clearly coming out of the sarcophagus like opens okay. dramatically. No, I think I think you're you're right. I do remember it opening. I just for some reason still thought it came from somewhere else. I mean, presumably because it didn't actually come from the sarcophagus opening, it came from wherever the smoke machine was. But regardless, <laughs> no, I I thought that they like somehow made it happen. But I don't think they were in the sarcophagus. They timed their dramatic entrance perfectly so it happened in the middle of them telling the story. Yeah, I think they were hiding behind the bookshelf. So this is the part where my notes just say blood sacrifice in all caps. Where Duloc stabs Lamia in order to open up the door to the loom of fate. And Lamia responds with, but I loved you. And Duloc says that was required. So before I go on my rant, did I, either of you have any specific comments So I have about a comment this? that I think, okay, no, I'm going to go first because I have something that comes just before what you guys are going to get into and I'm going to forget to come back to it. Sure. Um, so my comment says, is my note that says, good thing I didn't forget Duloc because he sure hasn't been in any of the episodes recently and neither has Lamia. Like, he wasn't in Tesla Ghost episode, he wasn't in Haunted House episode. Was there one between those two, or are they next to each other? I don't even remember. I didn't like either of them. No, they're next to each other. They weren't in the high school episode, The Rule of Three. They just kind of haven't been around. They were in The Fables of Doom. Yeah, their last episode was Apple of Discord, and they were just kind of there. Lamia was just kind of- Along for the ride. Yeah, like, that wasn't really even about them. 
So the last time they actually did an evil plot was episode four of the season. So like they're the big bad, but we haven't seen them in forever. So I imagine what must have happened is one of two things. Either they filmed a bunch of episodes that they weren't sure when they were going to air. And so they didn't have anything of the seasonal arc happening because they didn't know when it was going to happen. I could definitely see, like, that would be a big explanation for why everyone seems so weird and kind of out of character, like in the Haunted House episode, in, what was the other one where I complained about them, the characters seeming kind of weird? They seem a little weird in the Tesla ghost episode. They weren't, they weren't, the characters weren't really that weird. That wasn't really my problem with that episode. The Haunted House episode a lot, though. In the high school episode, Yeah, right? and like, so if you, that one, like, is a little bit more tied into, like, the character's they're a little weird, but it's clearly tied to who they are. Whereas with the Haunted House episode, they're just all really weird. But if you imagine that the Haunted House episode was meant to air before the Minotaur episode, or was written so that it could air before the Minotaur episode, you can understand why Baird has all of her hangups about like, oh, well, Cassandra, you can't do anything good here. Because if you imagine that they haven't been through the Minotaur episode, you wouldn't necessarily know that Cassandra has all these skills that are great for dealing with weird shape-shifting buildings. So that's one possibility. The other is that they had contract problems and couldn't get these two actors to come back, either because they weren't being compensated well, they didn't have the money to pay them, or whatever the problem might have been. They were busy with other things. So my hypothesis is twofold. One, where since these episodes aired over like the course of about a month, right? It was all very close together, yeah. It was all very close together with a lot of two episode days. So it would have seemed less weird to people watching it at it the time. It did not. We watched it at the time and it seemed super weird to us. I mean, yeah, slightly Maybe less a little weird, bit. I think. But I think second, it might have been a case where they filmed all the episodes kind of simultaneously. So they were like filming all of Duloc and Lamia stuff at the same time as they were filming other people's stuff. So there's only so much they could essentially get done with them. I mean, that then comes down to the same kind of thing, though, is that they couldn't get them to come in on more days. They couldn't get them to come back more for whatever reason to do things in other episodes. I mean, I don't know. I also don't know if there was some kind of weird network pressure to front load all the episodes that had Duloc and Lomia because people liked them or something. And so they're like, oh, we need to get people to watch this show, put all your good stuff first. That would explain why we responded so positively to the first half of the season and kind of hated the back half. But I don't even know how this happened. So the correct conclusion is we need some, one of our dear librarians who was involved in the production of the show to write in. We do. Or you can, you know, if you have any good actor connections, hook us up. We'll, we'll, t- we'll totally do an interview. Oh my god, I would be so happy if I could interview somebody from the show. Now that we've, I think, beaten that to death, why don't we go on to the bigger problem with the scene? So other than the fact that Lamia is a great character and shouldn't have been killed off, a big part of my problem is, but I loved you. I have a pretty big problem with that. So my first question is, is there any sort of textual evidence that would support that statement found in previous episodes? See, I think if you ranked all the characters and the librarians who have appeared in scenes with Duloc by their sexual tension with Duloc, is that an acceptable wording or... So I still am not sure whether they mean a familial relationship or a romantic one, and that's a big problem because I should know. I should understand in the scene where he kills her... What kind of love she is talking about. It shouldn't be confused. But, like, let's say, let's go, because this seems to be where you're going with it. So let's assume for a moment a romantic reading. Yeah. And then you can, you know, talk about what, yeah. yeah. That's how I read it. If you rank the characters by sexual tension with Lamia, or sexual tension really with Duloc, no, sexual tension with Lamia, I'm pretty sure Santa would be above (laughs) Duloc, honestly. Hard agree. They stared lovingly into each other's eyes for a while. Yeah, at least, like, Santa probably cares about Lamia. Right, and, like, that's my problem with a potential romantic reading, even though really no reading makes any sense, but 
I have a particular problem with a romantic reading because Lamia's character is kind of over-sexualized to a point that is a little bit questionable to me, just not because it's bad to have a female character who, you know, has, who flirts with people. That's totally fine. You should totally do that. But the fact that she's evil and we've seen that she likes people more when they're evil and you know, there's there's kind of some feminine sexuality being equated with evil a little bit, particularly when the other female characters kind of roll their eyes at her when she's doing that. But setting aside that for the moment, Lamia has sexual attention with almost everybody. Like, she flirts with everybody, except except to love, which makes me think she's got to be talking, like, in a family mentor way, but there's been no, like, indication whatsoever that they really care about each other at all. So this is just really weird. So my problem is with the romantic reading, which is what I interpret the scene as. The familiar makes not that much sense, because we later find out that Dublok is an immortal knight from Camelot. We super do. And and this is no longer a spoiler, so we can talk yeah. about it. Who isn't that big of a fan of, like, idiot humans who need a king to lead them. Right. So it seems kind of strange that he would have a familial relationship with Well, Lamia. I can't think we get the idea that it's one-sided. He isn't sad at all about killing her. But, like, it makes yeah. me angry because we just have no sense whatsoever of Lamia's internality now. Because I thought I kind of understood who she was as a character. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I kind of had this idea of who Lamia was, and it's like, oh, she's, like, really wants power and she kind of thinks that she knows better than people you know maybe she you know she seems to want good for the world because that's what we got in the santa episode but also she thinks that she's what's good for the world and she kind of feels entitled to take what's hers and that's really interesting and i'm really interested in this character she seems cool she's very evil which is also really cool she's good at fighting great but then also apparently she has this whole inner life that nobody outside the screen ever was told about where she also either is pining after Duloc or sees him as a father or something. And we just never knew about that. So it makes me feel like I don't even know this person now who's getting murdered. So it seems like her character is assassinated and then her character is assassinated and I'm doubly mad about it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like how your phrasing of that. I felt pretty clever, thanks. If they had a familial relationship, I feel like they would have set it up beforehand, right? They had to, and they missed it. Or like, if when Lamia gets stabbed, she could say, you are like a father to me. Right. Or something. Well, I understand why they kept it snappy. Well, they kept it snappy because they didn't think Lamia deserved an actual <laughs> character Well, okay, exit, that, yes. Which is the greatest betrayal this show has ever Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty angry about that, too. I, I do understand the impulse... When she's actually dying. Like, you, you have to have that line earlier, is what I'm saying. Because, like, the issue, she didn't need to see him as a father. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to say, you know, that was what was required if she said that. She has to use the word love, and that's fine. That's totally fine that that's how she frames it. And that word can be, can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. But before, we needed some kind of indication of whether this was a romantic partnership or a family partnership and that it existed before the moment she just dies. Because I remember we watched this... We didn't watch it live, but we DVR'd it and watched it, like, the next day or something, like, within days of it airing. And our dad had the remote, and I made him go back and listen to it again, because I was like, wait, what did she say? And he repeated the line correctly. And I'm like, I don't believe that for a minute. Go back. That's not what she said. But it is what she says. This is a bit of a tangent. That's what we're here for. In TV shows that tend to reveal characters as either being, like, LGBTQ or in LGBTQ relationships... A common complaint that people on the internet tend to be is, like, they complain that, oh, there wasn't sufficient, like, development, the relationship wasn't logical, blah-dee-da-dee-da. This was most notable for me for both, for example, the conclusion of Legend of Korra, or when they revealed Tracer as being 
gay in Overwatch. You see, the, the, these examples have very well-documented case of this type of background. Well, but the reason why is because people make the assumption, like, people are just only looking. No, no, yeah. Can I say it? Because I'm gay? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. so to be clear, the reason why this happens is because people are only looking, they see what they're looking for. You know, all television is really something of a Rorschach where you, you, you see, what you see is filtered through your own experiences. So, for example, the first time I watched a TV show with a gay character, um, which was Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I was completely confused that these characters were in a relationship. Actually, the episode where they say they're in a relationship, I didn't understand that that was what they were saying. Because they're not very clear about it because it was a long time ago and times were a little different. But also because I was just so looking for it, the idea of gay people had never occurred to me. So it didn't even occur to me that characters could be gay. And I think that that's a, that's a big source of where this comes from. So, so yeah, so this is the big thing. So my problem is that when people make those complaints, and then we end up with with <laughs> a scene like this, where a character actually has no foreshadowing, like, no, like, explanation or reason for, for their potential romantic or familiar relationship with another character it just makes yeah, it makes me you point that out that is kind of frustrating because there have been many relationships that have had much more foreshadowing than this or like much more built up than this and get backlash where this is just like oh yeah this seemed fine for them to do this when it makes no sense it's not fine and the, it, she's just gone like after that other than the cassandra timeline we don't even ever see her body do we see a brief shot of them covering her body when they run out of but that's the only resolution of this at least some of the people on the show have some respect thanks christian kane you're the real mvp and and she's literally stabbed in the back i mean yeah that was that was like reasonable like if it's gonna happen that's the way it should because yeah i i get the whole thing the serpents and blah blah no it's because it's like how they the writers stabbed us in the back well Yes, it's also like that. Do we have more things to shake our fists angrily about Mamiya getting stabbed? that was all my feelings. But I did also notice in this section, like, what's with all the blood? Like, we have Baird and her blood, and that's a big thing. And then there's the blood sacrifice and blood with its connection to to love. And so I, I, we're clearly doing something with all the blood imagery in this episode and i don't know what it is you know i feel like there's not a whole lot of blood in this episode so so you mean in the show in the show yeah yeah and then so we have like there's like the blood as a framing device there's a blood sacrifice i feel like there's blood in another i don't know if i tagged it in my notes or if it's we'll just real like notice it when we get there but I feel like there's, like, also more, there's, like, the nosebleed that, like, wasn't as significant, really. But there's just, like, people are just constantly bleeding in this episode. And I don't know <laughs> whether there was supposed to be some connection between all these instances, whether it's supposed to put us in a particular frame of mind. I think they just had some leftover drop <laughs> blood that they needed to That's use. Possible. I wonder, how do you fake a nosebleed? Because, like, I get, like, okay, you know, you either, you have, like, the packet and you can break it, you can put it in your mouth. Like, that, that all makes sense to me. How do you get it to come out your nose now that I think about it? I think you put it in your hand and then, like, cover your, your nose for But that's not usually what happens on this, like, she just starts bleeding. Maybe it's CGI. Alternately, I think what they might have done is cut away to someone else. And then come back. And she's just got it on her face? Maybe. I don't, didn't watch it that closely. It just really, it suddenly occurred to me and now I need to know. But anyway, if we don't have anything else to say about that, I was hoping that one of you guys would be like, ah, yes, the blood represents this thing. We go to the River of Time and we see the Loom of Fate. Yes. They're in the familiar librarian's TV yes, show, forest. forest. And then Duloc says something ominous about the fall of Camelot as he cuts the Loom of Fate. One thing I noticed is that for a bloom that's not very well marked, Duloc is very good at interpreting what 
the mystical reality defining loom of fate says and like where all the historical events line up so nice job Duloc. i'm glad we have you know the reverse gender role of a man being very good at and familiar with weaving we also see that later in the yes. episode i was actually going to talk about gender dynamics because apparently that's all i'm just going to talk about every week now or actually i think you guys probably talked about it more than me we all talk about it a lot but first i actually wanted to ask is there a connection between the River of Time and the Loom of Fate? And can someone tell us about the mythological underpinning of these two concepts? I'm more familiar with the idea of the Loom of Fate. So in Greek mythology, you had the three fates, basically goddesses, who, you know, weaved fate into mm-hmm. existence, right? Basically, each person has their own thread, and when it gets cut, you die. It's also kind of weird, because Zeus, also, I believe, also has two, these two jars with everyone's fates in them, so it's kind of confusing but so it's kind of like the father the son and the holy spirit where like things can be multiple things at the same time no more just just more of a case of hundreds of years of history you end up with multiple versions of the same okay so it's all sort of like fan fiction of itself yeah at least from my recollection it's probably inspired by the idea of greek mythology though Flynn Carton claims that the Loom of Fate is a myth that's very common, at least in the various Western European cultures that he lists off. Yeah, that's possibly true. I'm not as familiar with them. So I remember in Journey to the West, one of the classics of Chinese literature, there's a book that lists like when people are supposed to die that the main character erases his name out of. So less of a loon, more of a book, which makes sense in the context of China, where the mythological figures are in a giant bureaucracy. Yeah, and I think that also there's probably different symbols across culture. I wonder if what they were kind of going for is the idea of a record of fate is probably very popular, which I could believe. Yeah, but it's literally a loom in the librarians. The River of Time, I think that's just more something they thought sounded good. I mean, there's probably some, you know, culture out there with a river of time. But there's no connection necessarily to the Loom of Fate. They just, it just sounded cool because they wanted it to be in these woods. I mean, not as cool as the Pregnancy River from Journey to the West, but... But I couldn't find any specific references to a mythological river of huh. time. But I feel like river and bodies of water as a metaphor for the flow of time is pretty common, at least in literature. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And kind of abstract idea of culture. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely an idea I've come across many times in... Books. I, it's, it's weird because I can't necessarily pull out any specific examples, but like the flow of river as metaphor for time is, I feel like, so common that it almost defies characterization. But I don't know if that's like a specifically Western literary trope or if it comes from some specific place. I don't know. Librarianettes are right. Yes, please do. So Duloc snaps the loom of fate, right? He kind of just cuts across it, not very precise about his Camelot restoring cutting. I also didn't get how this like literally makes it go back. Like I understand, okay, so now the threads of reality are are cut so like there's a bunch of different timelines or something because like they're all frayed. How does that transport him and only him back in time to when Camelot fell? Just the logistics of this are a little shaky to me. And how does the cutting in the Camelot section cause history 10 years ago to be different? My interpretation of the event is there's a main timeline where Duloc successfully prevents Camelot from falling. 
Then there's the frayed timelines, essentially, which are the three timelines we then subsequently visit, which are separate from the main timeline, which aren't necessarily impacted by the restoration of Camelot. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense, but I don't really know why that happened. It happens to set up the plot of the episode. Well, yes, other than that. <laughs> I think it kind of comes back to the common, at least in time travel-related fiction, the common idea of the butterfly effect. Yeah where small changes to a history can have seemingly random effects. Well, but I feel like the world would be different in some other way. If Camelot if was Camelot, still around? Yeah, if Camelot was still around, it wouldn't just be, oh, ten years ago Flynn Carson would have decided not to take a job, and, like, one of these other people would have. There would be some other really big changes, but maybe that's why the worlds are so weird. Because I was like, okay, if ten years went by and things were okay, and they, they lost in the events of this season that happened over the course of a few weeks, why are the universes so weird? The problem is there's no references to Camelot being around in right. uh, any of the three timelines, which is why my theory that these aren't affected by the restoration of Camelot and are just like frayed ends, essentially. I mean, that's what I believe, too. I don't think Camelot was restored in the ghost world. Also, because they each timeline they mention the Serpent Brotherhood existing, which right. would need to exist if Camelot was still That's around. the best evidence. And Duloc was still just Lancelot. Oh, right, yeah. So Duloc, because Duloc is around in all these timelines. So yeah, Camelot definitely didn't get restored in these timelines. Anyway, it's kind of weird. My next note says, wow, he does look different. And I think I was referring to Flynn Carson. They make him look like a lot younger. I thought they did a great job dressing up everybody to make them look different. So they teleport to a forest that looks suspiciously similar to the forest they were in before. But now they're in the Ukraine. Baird accidentally punches Flynn, which I appreciate. In the throat. It was great. Flynn doesn't recognize her, which is, is played for dramatic episode cut. And they are eventually caught by a Ukrainian soldier where they find out some more stuff about this timeline and then the librarian jacob stone appears to save them before we go any further in this timeline as our resident jacob stone the librarian timeline expert <laughs> sam do you have any comments about this so it's really interesting given the context of this episode that it was airing at the start of 2015 which is right around the time of the beginning of the political crisis in ukraine so i don't think they're choice of Ukraine for this setting was an accident, given the political conflict at the time. I found it really interesting. Yeah, I think they generally do a good job kind of drawing on current events very, very lightly, so they don't really hit you over the head with it, but they kind of weave in little things pretty well. I think it was on purpose. So once we reveal that Stone is the librarian, we get this very awkward kiss from Stone. Never has there been less romance. There's less romance between Duloc and... <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just want the record to show. All right, the record shows it. Barrett happened to have the exact same reaction that I did, which was no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. My notes just say nope in this for this section. Yeah, it was... Not ideal. I did appreciate, at least, that when Stone understands a little bit of what's going on, he doesn't keep trying to push or be weird about it. He really respects, once he understands what's going on, he really respects that this person looks like the person he remembers, but she's had very different experiences and doesn't really know him that way and doesn't have those feelings for him. At least in this timeline. At least in this timeline. High school episode, not what's standing. Yeah. So Flynn insists that there's no such thing as magic, which is something that, that looking over my notes just now, I realized it's kind of weird about this episode, because in the pilot, 
at least I, praised them for not harping on the, oh, there's no such thing as magic for a really long time. But Flynn goes really long time without believing in magic. It's interesting. This seems to happen a lot in magic shows with like a mind wipe kind of episode. Because like in Buffy, they do this and there's an episode, Tabula Rasa, which is generally very good. But they really will not let it drop that one of the characters who's very into the occult and the mythos like doesn't believe in magic. It's not as bad as this. This one's worse. But it's pretty bad, even though they don't normally do that when new characters get drawn into the mythos they get onboarded pretty quick but for whatever reason when an old character forgets the writers think it's the funniest thing ever to have them laugh at magic for a really long time so i think it's just the writers are so tickled by the idea they just can't let it go granted none of us have watched unless you all have been holding out on me None of us have watched the original Librarian movie, no. so we are not as familiar with what Flynn Carson was like before his experience with the Librarian. Yeah, so maybe there, there was some kind of connection there that we just didn't get. Also, did he get the magic self-writing, self-talking letter that Baird got? Presumably. So... Flynn leads them to the magic stones, where they realize something is wrong because in this part of Ukraine, it would be mainly oak trees, but there's a giant circle of pine trees. So here's the thing about these trees. I did some research into pine trees in Ukraine, and pine trees are one of the most common tree types in the country. Even in the areas that are predominantly oak and the other type of tree whose name I don't remember that Flynn Carson said, pine trees would not be that out of place in this part of Europe. Pine is one of those common, not just in Ukraine, but in most of Europe. It's just kind of weird that Flynn would make a big deal out of the species of tree. Bigger deal is the ancient metal rod stuck to the trees, which I think is more of a hint than their tree species. Yeah, but they wanted to look cool and informed. Unfortunately, they didn't have an actual environmental scholar on their team, unlike us. So Stone realizes that they are showing up to weak spots in reality and different timelines, and Stone has to stay to power the stones. Get it? Because his name's Stone? Uh, I was hoping we could get through without doing that, but apparently we can't. <laughs> and as the Ukrainian soldiers are closing in, they disappear to the next timeline, Ezekiel's ghost-possessed timeline, where the world has actually ended, and there's a ghost apocalypse, more of like a zombie apocalypse, to be honest, has possessed the world as a result of failing at the haunted house. Yeah, I did just want to appreciate the show for not having any gory moments in this. I love the idea of like zombies and vampires and like pretty much all kinds of undead creatures, but I can't generally watch zombie movies or zombie shows because there's just, I don't know what the fixation is, but for some reason the writers always feel the need to put in blood coming out of places blood doesn't come out of. Like people vomit blood on each other. It's just never good and I can't handle it. So I really appreciated that this show did not feel the need to do that. But the trade-off is they reused the Tesla ghost possession effect. They super did. From last episode. Yeah, I actually forgot that these weren't Tesla ghosts. I didn't think they came from the haunted house. I had misremembered this as the Tesla thing blew up or something. I couldn't remember the details, but I thought that these people were all Tesla ghosts. They just look the same for no reason. The last wish of the serial killer in the haunted house blew a hole in reality or something that caused spirits to start possessing people. And this is kind of one of the first indications where we get about the whole theme of the episode being that the librarians complement each other, where Flynn Carson uses his knowledge of historical psychology trends in order to be able to solve the problem of the possessed people. 
As our resident psychology expert, Arya, how did you feel about this specific part? So to admit something really embarrassing, I didn't realize that they ever talked about psychology in this scene. Well, they talked about an old psychological theory about mind control and the odic force or something. Oh, yeah, no, I didn't realize that that was from psychology. Why don't we look that up? Because I know a little bit about the history of the distant, distant history of psychological science. More about the more recent history. Yeah, so the history of psychology was, it was real whack. It was real whack, right. So people were pretty confused for a really long time about how things worked. Usually where your intro to psychology textbook will start with the history of psychology. Because I haven't taken a specific history of psych class, but... You start with that and then kind of get a little more as you go into specific areas what the history of those particular areas were. But the most distant I know is that there was a, there was a lot of connection between spirituality and psychology in most parts of the world for a long time. There was lots of believing that mental illness and also some physical neurologically affecting conditions were the results of some kind of demonic possession or were like a bad, like some kind of negative force. So there was lots of sacrificing things or trying to make amends for things that you had done to deserve this condition because people didn't really understand where they came from, so they kind of thought that it was pretty much your fault. Which also, it does make a lot of sense when you understand how people work, which is that we would rather believe something is our fault than that we got unlucky, because if it's our fault, then we can do something about it. It's very hard to accept that something isn't your fault and there's nothing you can do to fix it. Wait, hold up. So I'm reading from the Wikipedia page for the Odic Force. Quote, He said that, one, the Odic Force had a positive and negative flux and a light and dark side. Two, Individuals could forcefully emanate it, particularly from the hands, mouth, and forehead, and three, the odic force had possible applications. This is literally just the force from Star Wars. Well, this came first, clearly. I mean, yes, but you know, it's basically just electricity, but hipster, yeah. Right, so I'm not familiar with this particular theory. Where I was going is, basically, there's a lot of connection between psychology and various forms of religion, spirituality, and mysticism for m most of history. And it didn't really become anything resembling its modern scientific self in most parts of the world until fairly recently. If anybody is aware, so I'm mostly familiar with psychology through its development as a medical science through psychiatry. If anybody is, has sort of learned a different side of that history of how it grew out of, or like how it ties in with mysticism in different parts of the world besides Europe, where a bunch of white men listen to Sigmund Freud a lot, I would be really interested to learn about that. And I would love to read about that on air as sort of an errata to this episode. So please write in if you know the other sides of this, but I pretty much am only familiar with how it became sort of a scientific study branching from medicine fairly recently, like in, you know, the last couple hundred years, and didn't really adhere to the hard science until like the past couple decades, and in a way is still in that process. I want the record to show that the ancient Greeks couldn't decide if thinking happened in the heart or the brain. Huh. In defense of the ancient Greeks, we're still not very good at psychology yet. We have a long way to go. Oh dear. So, and if I cut out there, it's because I cut off my mic because I was vomiting at the mere mention of the name Freud. Yeah, let's move on. I was going to say, I can go on a Freud rant, but I think that we should probably stick a little bit closer to the text of the episode than going there, because he has not been mentioned. Yeah. Mercifully. So, rest of the episode. Eve just now remembers the Loom of Fate is a thing, and apparently we find out that Team Jones crowdsourced the library, which I guess is a thing, and that Ezekiel apparently started being the librarian as a teenager. I love this version of Ezekiel. I'm a little weirded out by his whole you were like a mother to me thing, but I love this version of Ezekiel. I love Team Jones. It's amazing. I initially loved the posters in the background that say don't be a deadite, use the buddy system, but then whoever wrote that joke thought it was so funny they had to make like 500 different posters so they're in every single shot. I liked it better when it was only in one shot, but I also, it's still funny. Is deadite a specific thing? Yeah, well, I mean, that's what, that's what Ezekiel calls them. 
Like when he shows her the, the oh, people. Oh, okay, yeah. And they all go, mm, for a really long time. She eventually leaves. He keeps looking at them for a minute and then says, sod off, deadites, and then close the, closes the curtain. Okay. That scene now makes a lot more sense. You know, they're surprisingly calm for the most part, given the entire human population of zombies outside their doors. Right. Like they're not, I feel like they kind of did not. Under, so like over the course of a couple of weeks, the world has gone from normal to this. And no one is all that upset about it. And when it's ended, everyone is like, oh, that was nice. But it's like, dude, you almost caused the apocalypse a couple weeks ago. Like, you did not have time to adjust. And now the world has completely changed. Like, this is incredible. Like, this is beyond the most amazing thing to happen in your life. Why are you just, like, kind of smiling and being like, okay, I don't get it. So, I have a question. Did they electrocute the entire human race with Flynn's electricity thing? Because I'm not going to their small lab has the power... Require. We only see a small part of the population. Don't doubt the power of Team Jones. I think it travels through them and like amplifies through them or something. I don't. I don't know. It worked for me. I'm willing to accept. What it. I was wondering is that is there still a giant horde of zombies outside the door after they do the electricity effect? I think we're meant to assume no. So then they fade out of this timeline into a new timeline that smells like sulfur and has giant dragons that finally convince Flynn that magic is real. Despite seeing literal zombies in teleportation, it's it's the dragons that really do it. And then they get kidnapped by Lamia, who then introduces us to Wizard Cassandra as the librarian. So we need to go back a few paces. Okay, so first, I don't know if you guys remember, but the shot of the dragon flying overhead was used to promote the Apple of Discord episode, and we were all super mad that we didn't get to see the dragons. So it was nice to finally see it here. <laughs> oh, I don't I don't remember that. Yeah, to put a little context, I watched a lot more TV at this part of my life than you did. Because by this point, you were back to school, but I was out because it was my summer vacation. Because I was going to school in New Zealand at the time. So that's why I was just home watching this show with you. Even though I was in college at the time. Because I was on summer vacation on January 18th, 2015. So I was just kind of doing nothing and was really bored. So I watched a lot of TV, so I saw a lot of these commercials. Which is why I still remember them very well. I liked that. Then, I also wanted to call attention to the fact that Mommy is like, you were dead, I saw you die. Or maybe she says, I killed you. I don't No, she didn't kill her in this version, right? Dulok did. Yeah, I think Dulok right, did. Right, Dulok killed her, and then she was really mad, and she killed Dulok about it. That's right. This, this is in my notes. I'm, I'm remembering now. It's a little hard. I'm still, like, a little shaky from the timeline jump, you know, so it's hard to remember exactly what happened. But Mommy's like, you were dead, I saw you die. And Baird's just like, so we're even now. <laughs> I saw you die too. Which I thought was just like a really great line. Baird's super chill. Like she's like, she has no, nothing's left to give. Because she's just like completely accepted the shenanigans. Which I like because she's kind of always been the one who's like, ugh, magic. Yeah, Flynn calls attention to this. And I would also like to shout out this timeline for being where the one where Lamia kills Duloc in order to be with Cassandra, which is clearly <laughs> the best timeline. Clearly, yeah, clearly out of all the timelines, this is the timeline that we all want to be in. Also, I have in all caps, because we all need to keep this in mind, Baird initially believes that Lamia is planning to bring Duloc to them when Lamia says that she needs to get, quote, my liege. But she's talking about Cassandra. <laughs> So, I don't know if anybody needed me to point out that I was right all along about how Lamy and Cassandra are dating, but I will. I was right. They are totally dating. <laughs> Do people usually refer to their significant others as my lead? Oh, this is, this, is a, this is a lesbian thing. We all do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, but see, you didn't know for sure. 
Anyway, so... <laughs> I just thought it was kind of weird, because liege is usually a term you refer to, like, your monarch as. Right, and now Cassandra is, like, the ruler of this weird alternate universe, and, like, also talks kind of weird, and, like, also everybody talks kind of weird in this timeline, even though it was only, again, it was only a few weeks ago that this all happened, so I don't know how they, like, regressed to a feudal society when the dragons only rose up, like, a month ago. <laughs> well, one thing why Cassandra might be talking weirdest was when she used magic to heal her brain with it altered her brain permanently question mark <laughs> yeah i don't really know i mean i assumed that was part of why she is kind of weird but i don't really know why everybody else is so weird why is everyone so weird we yell about the librarian into the void for the ninth <laughs> time i think our librarianettes might be thinking why are they so weird after hearing the intro to this episode <laughs> Well, yeah, but I feel like there's only one way to do this, and it's by going all the way. You just have to embrace the weird. I'm still not 100% sure who you people are. Oh, boy. I'm not even 100% sure who I am at this point, so... Let's keep going. So they do some brainstorming about the Loom of Fate, where they realize they need a thread with magic power and tied to Greek myth in order to fix the Loom of Fate, which... Baird remembers is exactly what they have, but sadly, it is not actually here in this timeline, because that didn't happen. They didn't get the Theseus's ball Ariadne's? Ariadne's, yeah. I did like the part where now Flynn, after seeing all these things, is coming around to the same place where he would have made the choice in the first place. I don't really care about his internal journey that much, because this character has just really annoyed me all the way through the show. But I do like when he says, it's a life of choice, not a life of safety to kind of illustrate that he would choose danger over, you know, predictability if, you know, like, when given the choice to choose freely and openly, knowing all the information, he would rather choose than be safe, which I thought was cool. I don't know this if this is something that would have annoyed me if I had watched the original librarian movies, because I feel like he probably had a very similar personal journey, at least in the first movie. Probably. So... After spouting out some literal nonsense, Flynn comes up with the idea to whatever the word is for when you do the thing that fixes rope. I'm blanking on it. Weave? We not weave. They Flash. like splice together oh, yeah. the by summoning the librarians in an epic librarian summoning ritual. It's pretty great, and I love that even this version of Cassandra still says quiet, I'm doing math. I appreciated that. That's a line that came from a few episodes ago. Hilariously, other than the kind of silly pulling from the timeline effect that they do, where they literally just have someone off screen pull the <laughs> librarian and then cut to the librarian showing up in that scene, they're very unfazed by this. They're like, oh yeah, holding hands with people, let's do it. And then they manage to return to the original OG time- timeline with the ball of twine that they need to fix the Loom of Fate. Yeah, so I was just going to say, I thought it was interesting. It's a little bit over the top, but it's interesting and kind of nice that we get reflection and sort of a symmetry from the first episode where Flynn kind of bestows to them the difficult but valuable life of the librarian and then kind of goes off on to do his own thing. They now do this to him in a very weird, reflective way. I don't know that I needed to get the same lines again 
you know, I, I do like the, you know, A Life of Mystery and Misery of Loneliness but Adventure, A Chance to Save the World Twice Before Friday. Like, they're good. I don't know that I needed them again, but I did, I liked the, I guess, more subtle symmetry of what he has bestowed to them at the beginning. They now re-gift to him here. And that also reflects in how the episode ends, where now he's going off with Baird and they're each sort of charting their own way. So I thought that was kind of cool. So my question is, why don't the librarianettes come with them and then we just have two versions? I don't know. Because, like, Flynn shows up and they we don't end up with multiple versions of Flynn, despite him being very distressed about that idea earlier in the episode. Right. I still kind of feel like we would end up with extra copies if we brought them with them. I don't know why, but I, I feel like we would. I think that'd be useful. I would spin Like, librarian spinoff where they have, like, wizard Cassandra... <laughs> And, like, the alternate versions of the librarians as their own TV show. I mean, I feel like the only person who is, like, very substantively clearly different is Cassandra. And that's only because she magicked her brain into weirdness. So, I don't know that we necessarily needed that. But, like, her magic powers would be nice. It's implied at the end of the fairy tale episode that she's the main timeline Cassandra has... Magic. But she never uses it or talks about it again, so I don't know if she's, like, learning yeah. it off screen and we're gonna f- find out about it someday or what the deal is. So, we go go back to Luma Fate, where, luckily, this version of Flynn has a weaving degree, where he knows how to weave the Luma Fate. Thankfully, it's just a normal loom and not some special, like, magic loom that works differently. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about this conclusion. I mean, I get that he's sort of the hero or whatever, like, he's a main character. But I guess this is as good a place as any is to have the gender conversation around weaving and textiles as an, you know, as a important piece of the sort of roots of, I don't want to say feminism, because I don't think the idea of feminism was around yet when this began, but way back in the olden times, one way, one of very few ways that women were able to be somewhat independent, like, have their own income, was by, like, becoming a, a, like, producer of textiles. That was, like, a socially acceptable way you could be a lady and not just, like, hang around and have babies for dudes. So there's, like, very important gendered history in the concept of, like, weaving and, and having a loom and all this stuff. And it's, like, often connected to fairly feminine ideals. Even in these kinds of myths and stuff, fate is often portrayed as, like, female or feminine. So... Oh, I just had a sudden revelation about when we're talking about different cultures and, like, weaving. Mm -hmm. Neith is an ancient Egyptian goddess who weaves fate into existence. Right. She's one of many various creator deities. And actually, Wikipedia indicates that she became the goddess of weaving after the ancient Greeks started inter- interacting with them, and originally she was just a creator goddess, so it's it's whatever. But another example of a weaving fate, essentially. Right. And where I was going with this is often the sort of the idea of fate and the idea of creation is often, like, feminized, and certainly early, like, textiles were feminized, and they were very important for what in for women to, some women to develop some sense of autonomy back in the day. So it's a little weird that we have all these symbols, but then we just have Flynn sew it up and like, that's the end of it. And we don't really address any of that. Like, that's kind of fine, I guess. But it would have been interesting 
to have some kind of comment there or for some other character to do it. I don't really know how I would rewrite it to make it so that it incorporates that, but I just thought it was worth, you know, pointing out. So I was at least vaguely on board with the I kind of gender reversal where where at least in modern times we heavily associate like weaving as an activity with women so having Flynn do it as like the heroic act is kind of a reversal of of, like gender norms for for how male heroes generally resolve their problems yeah I can see how just sort of like with that aspect of it where Baird is fighting and he is fixing it by sewing is kind of cool but Again, I still feel like there's kind of a sense of, like, stomping on something that is not really understood or appreciated. It almost feels appropriative. Like, that's not quite the right word. That's a little too extreme for what I'm talking about, but it feels a little appropriative. Yeah, I see what you mean. I think it's also part of a case of Flynn is the only character who logically might have the knowledge or experience based to do the weaving i mean it doesn't really look like he's doing too much like he's not patching it up like he's just turned he's just pushing it in and out <laughs> yeah he, he puts it out and he doesn't even specifically do anything to right. fix the part of the loom that was cut right. i don't know how to sew itself. or weave anything but i could do what he did so i feel like it could have been anybody it's all a little weird i do get what you're saying about like the the role reversal and having baird solve the the physical aspect of that while he does you know the fixes the loom because he knows all about ancient weaving or whatever but i don't know it's it's just a little weird i would also put an asterisk next to the baird solves the problem physically but she really she doesn't really get stabbed yeah she gets stabbed and then jenkins who is revealed as galahad yeah does the fighting we kind of buried the lead here because we kind of got distracted we all knew that this was coming so it wasn't as exciting for us but we probably should talk about the reveal you know lancelot Duluc. Which is, we screamed when it happened originally. You know what bugs me, which is that Flynn, like, alternate timeline never became the librarian. He knew, yeah. As soon as he hears the name Duloc, realizes it's Lancelot. Because Lancelot's, you know, title is usually Lancelot Duloc. Yeah. Duloc meaning of the lake in French. Because in the myths, he was raised by the Lady of the Lake in her, like, underwater fairy kingdom. Which, it bothers me that he realized it. Like, immediately. But, like, no one ever pointed it out. Yeah, I don't know if that was kind of playing with the fact that they were going for this big reveal. But it actually, by this point, was kind of obvious. Also, maybe, uh, I feel like I had a different reaction initially. But I felt the Galahad reveal was, like, kind of What do you mean by underwhelming? Like, you knew it was coming? Or you're just like, oh, that's who he is. I thought it was going to be cooler. More is like, oh yeah, oh he's Galahad, like okay, and it's just like not really touched upon that much. Also, kind of a spoiler alert, kind of applies to season two where they also don't really yeah, talk about it. Not mattering very much that Jenkins is actually Galahad, like an immortal Arthurian knight. Also, question: Why does Camelot being restored cause Lancelot to change actors? But we still get John Larroquette. Like, I'm not complaining about having John Larroquette, but... I'm gonna go for, I really think they had a contract problem with Matt Frewer and Leslie and Brandt, and that's why all of this happened. I'm not blaming the actors, to be clear. I just think that there was some kind of, some kind of issue. I don't, I don't make any, you know, I, I have no theory about, like, whose fault, if anyone, it might have been. But I think that there was a contract issue. So, here's the thing. When they restore the Loom of Fate, he, there's a brief shot of new actor Lancelot briefly turning into... But he's clearly green-screened. Like, he's clearly not really there. Probably. So I think 
the idea was that when with magic restored, he would use the magic to like stay young, essentially. Like he's immortal, but clearly they they age. And one thing that I'm not sure is addressed, but in lots of versions of the myth, Galahad is actually Lancelot's son. For some reason, I thought that's what they were going for in the Librarians, but I thought they had established that in previous episodes. But going back to it, I don't think they actually explicitly established that Jenkins Galahad is Lancelot's son. No, it wasn't super obvious. I mean, there is clearly a connection between them. At the end of the Apple of Discord, they hug. And when I watched it the first time, I'm just like, huh, that's weird. When I watched it this time, I did remember this twist at the end. I didn't remember everything, but I remembered what the connection turned out to be. However, when I watched just the Apple of Discord and like pushed out of my mind, like chose not to think about what happens later and thought about how I would have reacted if this was the first time I was seeing it, I kind of thought they were playing up a romantic angle. I don't know if I'm just being a weirdo, but like that's how I read the weird hug at the end of the Apple of Discord, and I didn't say anything because I knew we couldn't really talk about it because we've seen the end and we weren't spoiling. But I thought it seemed kind of like they were going to go a different direction with this. But no family members, and it's all super weird. Well, we don't know that they're family members. Like, they're usually family members in Arthurian myth sometimes, but Arthurian myths aren't super consistent with the familiar right. relationship of all the knights to each other. Yeah, but usually Lancelot is Galahad's son. Uh, no, Galahad is Lancelot's son. That's like a pr pretty usual thing. I don't think we ever get so, an explicit answer. Yeah, it's not. I, I'm not sure why they wouldn't at least like address it some, somehow. Also, question for Sam, since you remember more about King Arthur than I do. Duloc says that there's only one swordsman his equal, and that's supposed to mean Galahad. But when you also say classify King Arthur as being relatively close to Lancelot's equal... King equal, Arthur's dead. King Arthur's probably dead. In a world in which Lancelot has won, that's probably true. Yeah. But it's presumably referring to Galahad. There's a lot of stories about all the knights fighting to determine who's the best, because... Of course they do that. Yeah, it's either Galahad or just some random knight whose only appearance is in the one story where he beats Lancelot, but usually Lancelot's character is framed as, like, you know, really good at being a knight, but also with lots of moral failings, so... So this all seems reasonable enough. Yeah, he has lots of moral failings in The Librarians, so checks out. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only thing I was going to say is it all seems a little weird now, though, that, like, why is this the moment that they choose to reveal this information? Like, they recognized each other before. So why, like, why has Jenkins chosen to hold this information back? This doesn't really make any sense. What my impression was that Jenkins was kind of ashamed of this part of his past and didn't- I think so too. I get that read too. But it seems like it'd be important information that like people need to know. I feel like he's lived long enough that he would like be able to overcome his sense like internal sense of shame and like address- Well I feel like in the Apple of Discord episode indicated that he has, still has a lot of sense of shame and that even though he's lived a long time since then he spent most of that time holed up in the annex without other people. I guess that's true. I guess I just wish he was able to be more real, but I guess they needed this to be the big reveal because it's the end of the season, so. And as we've previously discussed on this episode, in the time that Galahad slash Jenkins has been around, there hasn't been great psychiatry. I guess that's true. <laughs> he probably doesn't really know how to book an appointment with a therapist to work all this stuff out, so I guess that makes sense. So they have an argument about that people need kings to rule the stupid little humans, but Jenkins insists that they've earned the right to themselves. 
do we have any comments about our current ability to rule ourselves? I'm kind of Team Duloc at this point, <laughs> but I won't really get into that. I'll just say I I can sympathize with his position more than I could in 2015. My problem is I'm too skeptical of the people who declare themselves kings. Yeah. Even if I even if I look at myself and wonder have to wonder seriously whether I am fit to rule myself. <laughs> but luckily for us, Galahad wins the sword fight, so we get to continue ruling ourselves. Yes. And they manage to restore the timeline, but Eve is dying, so they use the storybook to get back to the library. And this was one point where I was kind of wondering. They have, a, like, a omnipotent, reality-altering storybook. Couldn't you just conclude the story and, and then everyone got better and have lived happily forever after? Yes, I see no reason why not, but they don't do that. But they do the dramatic scene of them discovering the library and getting the magic file of wound healing magic to save Baird at the last second. I had a few medical questions, but first, was anybody else a little bit concerned over whether the wound would heal? Because I kind of remember the whole, this would work if it was a regular wound, but it's not a regular wound. Wounds caused by Excalibur never heal. I remember all this. But then I was like, well, but what were those swords? Were they also magic? I don't know. They were held by magic people and nobody told me any of the rules. They just showed up in the scene, so... That is one interesting thing, because... When he gets the vial, Flynn explicitly says, oh yeah, ordinary wounds, which seems to indicate he thinks the, he thinks the wound was ex ordinary. But they really lucked out that this new version of Duloc, Lancelot, who has been around forever and restored magic to the world via Camelot, doesn't have a magic sword. Right, that's what I'm saying. A similar quality to Excalibur. Right. So I was a little bit concerned that this wasn't going to work. I remember being genuinely concerned. I didn't know whether Baird was going to make it. We, I mean, we didn't know. I'm saying I didn't know. We watched this together. Yeah. We didn't know if Baird was going to make it. Our dad was convinced that she, like, she would. I thought there was a good chance that they were writing her off the show, and I was very, very worried. But I did find it pretty funny that when they're getting ready to give her the potion, and Cassandra's, like, yelling for Flynn to hurry up, you can see that Rebecca Romaine is breathing. Um, it's like a very common <laughs> error. Like, you have to do that scene, like, ten million times. She's not in a good position at all. Like, she's sitting in such a way that you can see even the tiniest bit of movement. And, like, her body's, like, leaned very awkwardly. So I can see why she's not really able to not breathe for, like, the however many minutes or hours this might have taken. But it is a little funny that they couldn't have picked a better shot. And then I have a note that says, Dead people don't swallow, but it's nice it comes with dry cleaning. Why did I put that? Oh! Oh, because it disappears the blood. It disappears the blood. Okay, so dead people don't swallow, so I don't understand how the potion gets into her. I don't understand what the potion does once it's inside of her, and I double don't understand why it fixes her cl Like, the, the sword came through her clothing, so there should be a hole there, and it should be still covered in blood. And it also doesn't, doesn't give dry cleaning to Flynn, where he got blood on. So I don't really, I don't quite get it. But I'm glad she's not dead. And it's kind of weird to me, which is that is I don't remember being told that this is is resurrection capable. And she and Stone explicitly says to them something to the effect of I don't got anything in with reference to her like pulse. Right. He says like I, her her pulse is barely there or something, and then he's like I got nothing. But I mean, clinical death is actually somewhat harder to determine than most people realize because, as most people probably realize, your heart can stop and then you can end up still living. So. If her heart did stop, she probably, she's like young and fairly healthy, so she's probably still like revivable by CPR at that point. So like that, that works well enough to me, but it is a, like, it seems like a weird choice to confuse people in that way, because for the most part in popular culture, your heart stopping means you're dead unless you 
It stopped by some like obvious accidental thing like drowning. You can sometimes be revived on TV. Electrocution, you can usually be revived, but, or like a heart attack, you can be revived because people understand that you can survive heart attacks nowadays. But for the most part, if you like bleed out and your heart stopped, like you're just dead on TV. So it's a little, it's a little weird, but you know. Alright, I'll take it. Luckily, this strong female character did not get written off the show in a completely undeserving fashion like some other character previously on this episode did. Yeah, that would have been real unfortunate. I did like the line when she wakes up where she says, I was supposed to die, and Flynn says, I don't believe in fate. Which is a little ridiculous after the events of this episode where we realize there's a literal loom of fate and cutting it literally changes the world regardless of what you do. But okay, that's fine. And also, given the, oh yeah, it was almost like it was fate 9,000 times, and it's just to conclude on, oh, I don't believe in fate, it seems a bit silly. Yeah, it sort of felt a little bit like a middle finger to the audience. You know, I feel like Flynn often peddles ideas that the audience might not appreciate, like, you know, sexism. <laughs> so I think this is entirely within character. Okay, that's a good point. So we get our nice wrap-up. They get individual clipping books so they can go on their own adventures without a team, but the librarians team up anyway. At least that's what the last shot appears to indicate. I had a couple questions about this scene. So actually, I just have one. How are they planning on getting to Lima? Because they're in the annex and then they leave the annex. So are they going by regular plane instead of using the magic door? I don't think the writers thought this through. <laughs> yeah, they really just needed a shot of them walking together away, so... I suppose. And I like that, I think it's Stone who refers to Ezekiel getting a book of his own, like a mini clipping book, as a, quote, pity book. <laughs> I just, I appreciated that quite a lot. So we get one last Jenkins-Baird conversation, where apparently Jenkins and Flynn don't remember what happened. Though I'm not 100% sure I believe Jenkins. I'm not 100% sure I believe any of them because they're all being super weird about it. And I don't know if they're being super weird about it to imply that they're lying or if they're just being super weird about it for no reason. Like, I kind of believed Flynn not remembering anything. He seemed persuasive. But Jenkins is the kind of character who would definitely lie about remembering. Oh, yeah. But he's not really sure. Barrett has a realization that everything worked out perfectly, including going to Santa, which was not the clipping book. It was Jenkins' idea. And Jenkins just smiles mysteriously, and when this doesn't get addressed again, <laughs> whether Jenkins has some future seeing powers to know that they needed to save Santa so that Baird would be able to handle the multiple timelines. No, my theory is that this is all part of Santa's 4 master plan. Oh my god, Santa's master plan! <laughs> yeah. Santa knew the yeah. whole time! Thank you, Bruce Campbell! Yeah, no, not just. I think the clipping book <laughs> is related to Santa, right? Because who do we know that has a magic book that knows everything that's happening in the world? Santa, you know, is naughty and nice lists. The clipping book is clearly an instrument of Santa's magic. Oh my goodness. So what I'm learning is, instead of writing librarians fanfiction about each of the timelines, your fanfiction should have just been about how this is all Santa's 4D master plan. It's not fanfiction, it's 100% truth. Okay. And the show ends up with Baird and Flynn awkwardly teaming up to fight a cult somewhere. And that's our final shot is them walking together through the door. And then we're just done with the season. Presumably they're going back to that same forest. Almost Presumably. Certainly. So, end of episode thoughts? So I will say, I... I think I like this episode much more than our analysis gave on. Yeah. I think that we... Yeah. Have, we've talked about this episode so much that I think we kind of ended up mostly picking at the things that didn't work. It was genuinely a really brilliant 
storytelling device. I think that each of the three timelines was done extremely well. There's lots of really good performances. The reveal is incredibly dramatic. I remember just really, really loving almost every minute of it. They could have tried a bit harder with Stone's timeline. Like, I had to work to write that fanfic. Yeah, his timeline wasn't so much because it was more focused around, like, establishing Baird, figuring things out, and then also Flynn Carson, who comes with her through the timelines, alternate Flynn Carson, more so than Stone himself. But the other two are really good. I think shout out to Noah Wiley being able to play both versions of Flynn Carson pretty well this episode. The librarian ets in this episode have actually surprisingly little screen time individually. That's true, because it was kind of the Eve Baird episode, in a way. Yeah. It's really all about her, because she's the only one who really knows what's going on the way the audience knows what's going on. I did like what we got from each of the librarianettes. I thought they were good. But I also think it's kind of nice to end the season the way we started with focusing on Eve and her significant character difference between someone who started as someone who had no idea what magic was. Flynn had to convince her of the reality of magic to the reversal at the end of the season where she's perfectly comfortable with everything that's happening and has to convince Flynn that magic is a thing and guide him along. And can do it without Flynn's expertise, which I think is kind of a affirmation of what we've kind of been seeing the whole season. So what is everyone's least and most favorite parts about this episode? I'm going to just cut in and say that Lamia's death was my least favorite part of the episode, so Darcy, you two have to be creative. Oh dear. Okay, I'm going to go rogue on this one. My least favorite part of this episode is not actually contained in this episode. My least favorite part of this episode is that we didn't get more of Lamia and Duloc before this. Because I feel like we could have made this all a lot stronger if we had seen them more in the last three episodes. More than none <laughs> in the last three episodes. Sam, I'm thinking. But like... Like I said, this is a really good yeah. episode. It's hard to pick things that are genuinely, yeah. strongly objectionable. Especially since we both pick the things that we object to, and they're basically kind of the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you know what? I'll, I'll, I found a way to be mad. I'm mad that they didn't bring alternate universe Lamia into the main timeline. Oh my god, that would have been amazing! So I'm still, so it's still a way of saying I'm mad about Lamia's death, but in a original way <laughs> how weird would that have been if you're cassandra yeah <laughs> and like now you have alternate universe timeline lamia who's like super loyal to you now yeah so favorite parts of this episode so many i'm gonna say cassandra's timeline since no you too slow Fine. cassandra's timeline was great my favorite part and this is kind of a weird one but my favorite part is when the three librarianettes meet each other in the annex there's nothing, like, really particularly favorite about it, exactly, and I can't say what I really like about it, which is kind of the whole point of the podcast, but I just, there's something about the three of them coming together when they don't know each other, but they kind of sort of know what's going on. They're accepting their own demise in order to save some version of the world, and it's just, like, very heavy, but very sweet. Sam, I know you struggle with this section, so my favorite ideas? part of the episode... I'll say... Did anyone say the Jones timeline? No. No. I'll say the Jones timeline then. I, I, just, I just found, you know, they only... They didn't really delve into the other librarian's, you know, unique take on running the library. That's as true. As much as they did with Jones, which I thought was a good aspect. Yeah, and I do really like the way they sort of build on his character as we know it in the real world by showing all the things that he's done really well, even though his world has kind of ended the most. Though, 
they also really lucked out that Cassandra is a wizard and can solve the plot problems True. in her timeline. Since we've had plenty of extra content for this episode, we're not going to do our fun facts for today. But tune in for a very special episode of And the Podcast of Wisdom, where we're going to be doing a season re- recap and going through the season as a whole and reviewing thematic ideas of The Librarian Season 1. That's it for this week. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at And the Podcast of Wisdom, or send us an email at And the Podcast of Wisdom at gmail.com. You can find us on the web at And the Podcast of Wisdom.wordpress.com, or leave us a rating or review on iTunes to help others find the show. Our theme music was written by Matt Kavner Johnson, and our cover image was designed by.